0: If you brought along a Bible, please uh, turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. A passage that we've looked at before, but is really important uh, for the subject. And so we'll continue with it. Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. In other words, the purpose of things in the beginning carries on right down through history to the present day, including gender. Remember, remember the quote from the great Dutch theologian Herman Bavinck when he summarized the essence of the Christian faith. He says, the essence is that the creation of the Father, so think in terms tonight of gender. The creation of the Father was ruined by sin. Gender has been ruined. Ruined by sin, but it is restored in the death of the Son of God. And recreated by the grace of the Holy Spirit into the kingdom of God. Now, what I'm going to try to do tonight is put gender into a theological context. I'm going to try to show how gender fits into the big biblical arch that goes from creation through the fall into the resurrection. Creation, fall, resurrection. These three spectacular moments in the story the Bible tells are more than just events. Remember, we've been saying all along that it's the deep stories that form us, and we should learn to draw on the deep story of Christianity as we look at these really complex issues. So tonight, we're going to draw on this deep story as we look at gender. We're going to take each in turn. Let's begin with gender in the creation of the world. So Genesis chapter 1, if you'll go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, we're going to look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, the word bara is the Hebrew word for create. It's in the very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created. So the first thing we're told about God in the Bible, the very first action of God is creation. And then here in verse 27, in one verse, bara, create, is used three times. Now that matters, because in the Hebrew culture, three was their way of doing the superlative. So in English, we can do the superlative in two ways. We can add EST to the end of a word, or we can add most before a word. So Janelle would say of me, obviously, the baldest, (laughs) or the most bald, or, Sean, the most bearded. Uh, Zeke, are you jealous? I, you, oh, yeah, okay, all right. Three times. So the first action of God in the Bible is bara, create. And then suddenly in verse 27, he does it three times in one verse. Now, that's just a literary way of showing that verse 27 is the high point of chapter 1. It is, it's the pinnacle of chapter 1. And it is when God creates not just anything, but humans, and he creates them in a particular way. He creates them as male and female. There are two different ways of being human, the male way and the female way. And notice what God thinks about this in verse 31. He looks at what he's done And he declares it is very good. Embodied difference is good. Sexual differentiation is good. Now let's press pause for a moment and get a definition under our belt. That very first definition, sex from a biological perspective. When we're talking about biological sex, we're talking about the physical, biological, anatomic dimensions of being male or female. And this includes things like chromosomes and gonads and sex hormones and internal reproductive anatomy and external genitalia along with secondary sex characteristics. This is determined at fertilization. Go back to Genesis 1. Here we see that humans bear the divine image, and we bear that image in the diversity of male and female flesh. And this focus on sex comes up again in the next chapter, Genesis chapter 2, the second creation account. In Genesis chapter 2, it's not so much that it has a high point as it has a center point. The, the literature functions with a different structure. And on chapter 2, it, funct- it functions by centering on something. And the center point of chapter 2 is verses 18 through 25. The Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed woman. No. That's what you expect. I'm going to make a helper fit for him. You expect the next thing to be Eve, but it's not. So he forms every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called them, every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, the birds, of the heavens, and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he put into a a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, At last, right, I saw the chimpanzee, I saw the mosquito, like that's not that's not my kind of thing. At last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here so in chapter one, the high point is is man as male and female. And in chapter 2, the center point is once again focused on this sexual difference. And this is affirmed again after sin. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. So after the event of sin, in chapter 5, verse 2, we have this same focus reaffirmed. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man, and they were created. And then we already saw how Jesus makes the same point in Matthew chapter 19. What I'm saying is that we must learn to remember that sexual difference is at the heart of God's creation of humankind. It's right there, right at the beginning of the Bible. And science tells us it's right at the beginning of life. We know that sex is determined at fertilization by the kind of sperm that fertilizes the egg. Fertilization by an X-bearing sperm produces a 46XX zygote, which normally develops into a female. Fertilization by a Y-bearing sperm produces a 46XY zygote, which normally develops into a male. You are a male or female based on your reproductive system. A male is biologically organized to donate genetic material. A female is biologically organized to receive genetic material and then gestate the resulting offspring. This is a fundamental binary stable difference and it stretches across species. Now, during the first six weeks of embryological development for humans, males and females develop in more or less the same way. But at week seven, things begin to change. From the seventh week on, males and females have differences that show up at the cellular level. For example... The Institute of Medicine at the National Academy of Sciences published a report in 2001 entitled, Exploring the Biological Contributions to Human Health, Does Sex Matter, Being Male or Female? And the answer in the report is absolutely. To quote from the report, there are multiple ubiquitous all through your body. Differences in the basic cellular biochemistries of males and females. And these affect your health. Many of these differences are a direct result of the genetic differences between the two sexes. And differences between the sexes is increasingly regarded as vital for good medical practice. Scientists have found out that male and female bodies are susceptible to diseases in different ways, to differing degrees, and that a male body can respond to the same treatment as a female body differently. Being a male or a female is a deep, biological, cellular, Reality. It begins with our DNA, it begins in fetal development, and it unfolds into every bodily system. Your sex, as a male or female, is a bodily biological reality. That's what science tells us, and that's what Genesis 1 and 2 tells us. That this is fun. This is one of the first things we're told about humans. God made humans in these two ways. This bipolar sexual way. This was how God intended it to be. In creation, we see there is not only embodied differences. Embodied difference is good. But there's more going on here. Because in Genesis chapter 2. It is not only about biological sex, it is also about gender. Some definitions. Gender is the psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being male or female. It's your maleness, your femaleness. Gender identity is how you think of yourself as a male. Do you think of yourself on a scale of masculinity? How masculine do you think of yourself on a scale of femininity? How feminine do you think of yourself? So there's gender, gender identity, and gender role. This is the ways in which people adopt cultural expectations for maleness and femaleness. So in one culture, it means a male wears a dress. In another culture, it means he would never wear a dress. And we see see maleness and femaleness, gender and gender roles showing up right there at the end of Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man, not talking merely about a biologically sexed man, but it's talking about a gendered expression. A man will leave his father and mother. Father and mother, these these are categories that embody much more than your gendered sex. This is about, this is about your social gender, this is about your gender identity, gender role, and they will become one flesh. And look how it ends. It ends with the man and his wife were both naked and we're not ashamed. They are not ashamed of their gender. They're not ashamed of their gender roles. They're not ashamed of their gender identity. And their gender and their sex are, are perfectly aligned. Adam is a man who feels like a man. And expresses it in his culture's ways as a man. And Eve is a woman who feels like a woman. And expresses her womanliness. But then chapter 3 happens. And in chapter 3, sin shows up. And when sin enters creation, everything breaks. Including biological sex. And our genderedness. We live in a world where our bodies are both very good and terribly disordered. And we're going to see this tonight in two painful dimensions. And I've tried to pick out the most painful so that I can show you the Christian account works. It rises up to the challenge of the most difficult things. I want to talk about how our bodies are both very good and terribly disordered at the biological level and the psychological level. First, the biological. We live in a fallen world, and one of the ways the fall casts its shadow all around and all through us is that for some of us, it touches us at the level of our biological sex. Earlier I said... That fertilization by an X-bearing sperm produces a 46XX zygote, which normally develops into a female. And when it's a Y-bearing sperm, normally develops into a male. Normally, but not always. Things can go wrong at the biological level. And when that happens in this category that we're talking about tonight of, of of sex, of of your biological sex, when it happens at that level, it's called disorders of sexual development. This occurs in roughly one out of every 5,000 births. And when that happens, it can result in basically four things. Ambiguous external genitalia, a mismatch between internal and external reproductive organs, the incomplete development of reproductive organs, or even the formation of two sets of sex organs. Now, typically, the cause is some sort of genetic mutation or chromosomal or hormonal defect. Many of the conditions that develop from this are labeled intersex. Intersex, that's defined on the inside of your your handout. Intersex or intersexuality is a range of physical biological and anatomical issues that make identifying a baby as male or female difficult i'm going to give you five examples kleinfelter syndrome it's a chromosomal disorder that occurs at conception when something happens it causes there to be more than the number of normal chromosomes So instead of 46, there's 47. And the extra chromosome is an X. So this means the person has XXY. Remember, a normal male is XY. A normal female is XX. But this is a very rare condition where you have XXY. They develop as males, but they tend to have abnormal body proportions with enlarged breasts, and they frequently suffer from sexual and reproductive problems, including infertility. Second example of intersex, Turner syndrome. This is kind of the opposite. It's also a chromosomal disorder. It also occurs at conception. This happens when there's less than the normal number of chromosomes. Instead of 46, there's 45. And the missing or partially deleted chromosome is the X. So instead of XX or XY, instead of uh, the male, this person is only one X or X and a partial X. And as a result, the person develops as a female, but she's infertile because it takes two X chromosomes to normally develop ovaries. Third what we used to call true hermaphroditism, now it's called ovotesticular disorder of secular, sexual development. This is the presence of both testicular and ovarian tissue in the same individual. Fourth, a fourth example, complete androgen insensitivity syndrome. It's, it's um, abbreviated as CAIS. It is very rare. One out of 20,000 to 64,000 births. So, between one and five in the Harrisonburg area. This is a person who is genetically XY. So, that's a male. But there's a mutation in the gene that contains the androgen receptor protein. So, as a result, the male produces testosterone, but cannot receive testosterone, can't process it. As a result, the person is genetically a male, XY, but not so simple. They have female genitalia, and they look externally fully like a woman. Most people with CAIS um, are raised as females. They look female. They are female. They, their own sex, their own sense of their gender identity is that they're female. In fact, Wikipedia reports only two known cases of someone with CAIS uh, who thinks of himself as a male. So it's a female, but internally chromosome, it's this, the, she's a female, but internally XY. Fifth, congenital adrenal hyperplasia. This can have many outcomes, including XX chromosomes, but male external genitalia. This is a result of enzyme deficiency in utero. Now, here's five examples of how a baby can be born with ambiguous genitalia. And what happens here is that the doctors should try to discern the cause. There's lots of different options, the cause, so that they can identify the underlying sex of the child. But remember, this is not a third sex. And this is my point. This is either a male or a female, but with a disorder in their development. And the sound medical response is to identify the predominant underlying sex and then take measures to provide health and functioning as far as possible through hormones and possibly surgery. Now, why am I going into all of this? Because recently, there has been a push to reclassify this situation from disorders of sexual development to differences of sexual development. And there are two motivations behind this recent push. A good one and a bad one. First, there is undoubtedly a very good and healthy and wise desire to avoid stigmatizing people. I mean, who wouldn't rather be known as different instead of disordered? But the second motivation is not good. It is unwise and unhealthy. It is the desire to erase the distinction between ordered and disordered development of human sexuality. And this is a drive to obscure the fact that a natural order exists to human sexuality. Instead of normal versus abnormal human development, there would just be a variety of ways in which humans can develop sexually. But the problem is, whether it's the sexual and reproductive systems of your body or the respiratory system, Or the cardiovascular system. The the distinction between order and disorder matters. It is based on a a fundamental commitment that a heart is made for something. (laughs) That lungs are made for something. It's based on the presupposition of purpose. Determines if something is different or if something is disordered. A heart that doesn't pump blood is not different. It's diseased. A digestive system that does not process nutrients is not different. It is disordered. It isn't ordered to its proper end. A similar logic applies to the reproductive and the sex organs. Now, all I'm doing is I'm showing how the shadow of the fall... Can strike at the biological level. Now, I want to turn our attention to something far more emotional. I want to talk about how the effects of the fall can strike at a psychological level. And to do this, I want us to think about gender dysphoria. What is gender dysphoria? Gender dysphoria is the sense that your body and your identity, your your biological sex, your body, and your gender identity don't match. It's a sense of inner restlessness, of not being at home in your male or female body. As Chaz Bono, a transgender activist, puts it, there's a gender in your brain and a gender in your body, and for 99% of people, those things are in alignment. For transgender people, they are mismatched. That's all there is to it. Or as one slogan puts it, some men are, are born in their bodies, others have to fight for it. Now, when thinking about these issues, there is a massive danger. This is a hot cultural issue, and there are passions roused on both sides of the debate. And that's a danger. Because it means we can either think about it as an issue, abstract out there. And we can forget about that we're really talking about people. Actual people. People loved by God. People made in his image. Most of them have no interest in waging a culture war. They just want to live their lives. And many of them live their lives under conditions of deep distress. According to one set of statistics, 34% of trans people attempt suicide. 64% are bullied. 73% are harassed in public. 21% avoid going out in public due to fear. That's terrible. It's horrific. Because again, we're not talking about statistics. We're talking about people. Somebody's son, daughter, Brother, sister, father. People like the father of one of Janelle and I's friends, who in midlife goes through a divorce and transitions to be a woman. People like the Christian man in his 60s who's a member of a church pastored by an acquaintance of mine who wakes up every morning wishing he was a woman. Or I have another very good friend whose friend underwent gender reassignment late in life because he was waiting until his mother died because he didn't want to cause her any distress. No media fanfare, no great fuss, just quietly, discreetly changed his identity. Another friend of mine in his hometown two years ago, a man hanged himself in a park because he was being bullied for being transgender. When we talk about the issue of gender dysphoria, we are talking about people loved by God in every situation, made in His image. And we have to admit that Christians have not always been nice. Christians have said some appalling things. Like the church members I I, I was told about by my friend recently who discovered that one of the children in their kid's Sunday school class was transgender, born a girl but living as a boy. So these people wrote a letter to their pastor, quote, if that thing, whatever it is, is in Sunday school next week, we're leaving church. That's revolting, (laughs) that thing made in the image of God, beloved by God, human being. And yet, we can't swing the other way either and just get sentimental about it. We can't let our natural sympathy cloud our thinking on this. Precisely because we love people, we must let the gospel shape our beliefs and our practices. Three things to say about gender dysphoria. Number one, we do not know its cause. We don't. Science knows next to nothing about gender identity development in a normal situation and even less than that in gender dysphoria. There's, several the- there's a whole host of theories out there. Ha- a number of them center on the brain. It's called brain sex theories. A number of them center on multiple facts, um, primarily psychosocial facts. But there's no agreement. We don't know. We don't know where this comes from. We don't know if it's happening in utero. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. Number two, we do know it's not a choice. It is not a sin. And for many people it may never go away. It is no more Yeah I'll come back. Number three. One, we don't know its cause. Two, we know it is not a choice. Number three, we do know that it is a disorder. And so we should think of gender dysphoria like we think of other dysphoria focused on the body. For example, anorexia nervosa. Those who suffer from anorexia nervosa believe themselves to be overweight when in fact they are dangerously thin. One way that anorexia plays out, it can play out in several ways, one way is that a person thinks They initially feel overweight, but they know they're not. So they struggle with their mistaken feelings until the feelings overwhelm them and they begin to believe that they are actually fat. And this belief becomes their dominant reality and governs their actions. That's one way anorexia plays out. Likewise, some people with gender dysphoria initially feel as if they were the opposite sex, but they know they're not, so they struggle with their feeling until the feeling overwhelms them and they come to identify as the opposite sex and act accordingly. Dr. Michelle Critella, the president of the American College of Pediatricians, wrote a 2016 article in the Journal of American Physicians and Surgeons that, quote, A girl with anorexia nervosa has the persistent, mistaken belief that she's obese. A person with body dysmorphic disorder, BDD, something different, body dysmorphic, harbors the erroneous conviction that she is ugly. A person with body integrity identity disorder, BIID, identifies as a disabled person and feels trapped in a fully functional body. Individuals with BIID are often so distressed by their fully capable bodies that they seek surgical amputation of healthy limbs and even cases where they're requesting surgical severing of their spinal cord. Now, if we believe in the fall, we can get this, right? We can say the shadow of the fall can not only fall across biological lines, but it can fall across psychological lines. And just like the biology isn't a choice, that the psychology doesn't necessarily begin in a choice. Dr. Paul McHugh is the University Distinguished Professor of Psychiatry at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine for 26 years. He was the Director of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at Johns Hopkins University. During that time, he was also the Psychiatrist-in-Chief. Very controversial uh, by the trans community, highly respected In um, throughout the scientific community, he says that we must remember that gender dysphoria is a disorder of the mind. It is not a disorder of the body. And he said we should no more do sex reassignment surgery than we should do liposuction for an anorexic. You don't treat the body when it's the mind. Now, we're talking about one of the very painful ways... That the long shadow of the fall lays across our lives. We've seen this at both the biological level and the psychological level. Now what I want to do is go to that third moment in the Bible. Because the fall is not the end of the story. God does not abandon us to our broken bodies and our broken minds. And to show this... We're going to stick with the issue of gender dysphoria and we're going to turn now to consider gender dysphoria in light of the resurrection. Turn in your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is arguing from the resurrection of Christ to the future resurrection of all believers in Christ because some people in Corinth... We're denying that we would be resurrected. In verses 3 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 3 through 11. He says Christ has been raised. As the first fruits. Of those who have died. And thus he guarantees. The resurrection of believers. So Paul sets up. In verses 20 through 23. A contrasting parallelism. So parallel things that contrast each other. The parallelism is between Christ and Adam. Verse 21, for as by a man came death, Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So Paul is establishing two things in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First of all, he's saying there is an organic connection between the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of all in Christ. Christ was not raised in isolation because he's the last Adam, the representative head of a new humanity. Christ was raised as the first fruits of a great harvest. The second thing Paul is establishing is an organic connection... Between Adam's body in creation, not in the fall, in creation, and Christ's body in the resurrection. And from verse 35 onward, Paul answers the objection, verse 35 is the objection, he names it. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body are they going to come up? This is what the Corinthians are saying. And surprise, surprise, his answer is to go back to Genesis. Because he's been learning from Jesus. You face a really complex issue, run like heck to Genesis 1 to 2. He argues for both continuity of bodies and transformation. One of the ways he does this is with an analogy of putting a seed in the ground, planting a seed, sowing a seed. And this analogy of a seed, think about if you garden, think about how a seed enables Paul to walk this fine line where he asserts both the radical change of a body in its resurrected state, and yet its organic continuity with the mortal body that preceded it, right? With a seed, it transforms into a plant, but there's still an organic continuity back to the seed. So Paul says this is the way to understand what's going to happen to our bodies when they're resurrected. He observes the many different types and look at verses 39 through 41. Not all flesh is the same. There's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fishes. Where else in the Bible do we get somebody talking about animals, birds, humans, and fish? He's drawing these categories straight out of Genesis chapter 1. And then... He starts talking about the heavenly bodies in verse 40 and 41. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but with the heavenly, where else in the Bible do we get the heavenly bodies described? He's going back, he's rooting his thought in Genesis 1 and 2. In other words, Paul's argument for the resurrection of our bodies is rooted firmly within the original created order, the way God made it. And this implies that we best understand the resurrection when we reflect not on the fall, not on disordered, not on diseased, but when we go past the fall back to creation, the original creation. And as Paul uses the analogy of the body as a seed, he states, look at verse 38, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Now, two really important things in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 38. Number one, God is sovereign over the kind of body. But God gives it a body as he has chosen. Chosen. God's sovereign authority stretches over the body that you will be raised with. It is He, not we, who gives form to the body. And He does it in conformity with His choice, not ours. It's crystal clear there. God gives it a body as he has chosen. Pro-choice. Pro-God's choice. You don't get a say in this. Now this has obvious implications for the question of gender reassignment. It doesn't answer it all in detail, but it does give us the framework. But equally important, notice the tense of the verbs in verse 38. He gives a body, present tense, in the resurrection. There'll be a moment when when we're raised from the dead. He's going to give Beth a body, present tense, as he has chosen, past tense. It's an aorist for the nerds out there. In other words, as he chose in creation. What this means is that if you were born with a female body, no matter what you do to it, you will be raised with a female body. If you were born with a male body, you will be raised with a male body. This fits with what we know of the resurrection appearance of Jesus. He was raised bodily. He was able to be seen and touched. He could eat fish with his disciples. And when the tomb was empty, he didn't rise up with a different body and leave the old one behind. He had the same body in which he was crucified. He was raised in his male body, which the Father had prepared for him in the incarnation. And although the disciples at first, they couldn't recognize him, once their eyes were opened, they saw immediately, this is the male Jesus. This is the Jesus we knew. The second thing we need to notice about 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 38 is that in the resurrection there will be transformation. Wonderful transformation. Look at verse 53. For this perishable body Must put on imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable puts on the imperishable. And this mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death where is your victory? O death where is your sting? This body. It says four times. Right there. Four times Paul says this body. This body. This body. Weak. Frail. Dying. It's going to put on power and immortality. Just think about a bride putting on a wedding dress. One day her husband sees her in her jeans and t-shirt. Next day she's in her wedding dress. Same woman, but a transformation. That's what Paul is saying. This will happen to you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Your body will be wonderfully transformed. Which body? This body. The one God gave you. The one you were born with, your female body, your male body. Now how does that strike you? How do you feel about your body right now? Do you feel comfortable in it? Insecure? Do you feel its imperfections? Do you wish it was different? This frail, weak, dying body, your frail, weak, dying body will clothe itself with immortality and it will be magnificent. And on that day, not one of us will say, I wish I had a different body. Because it will be your body, your male body, your female body. It will be yours and it will be beautiful and glorious and it will be forever. And you will feel completely at home in your body. One of my research professors for my PhD was the great Christian scholar Anthony Thistleton. He wrote a massive commentary on 1 Corinthians. And when he's talking about all of this, he uses a musical analogy. He says, the post-resurrection body, it will be purposive and a dynamic crescendo of the life we live now. In other words, when you think about the new creation and your new body... Imagine a symphony, the theme announced at the beginning in frail pianissimo on the woodwinds. As the symphony develops, the theme grows, it's challenged and disappears. But then at the climax of the final movement, with a magnificent crescendo, the same theme triumphantly returns fortissimo, scored for full orchestra, with brass to the fore, the same theme, but gloriously transformed. And so when it comes to our bodies and their sex and their gender, there is an objective God-given moral order to creation. And it is affirmed and reaffirmed and renewed and perfected in the resurrection. Now, this is hard and this is good. I want to close this with six characteristics For a church that believes this. To be a faithful church. When it comes to thinking about gendered bodies. In creation and the fall and the resurrection. What does a church that really takes this seriously look like? And I'm going to give you six characteristics that I'm taking from. The leading Christian psychologist dealing with issues of of gender identity, Mark Yarhouse. And I'll talk to you about him later when I recommend some resources. The first characteristic of a church that takes this seriously is clarity. We must be clear about this. We need thoughtful clarity on a biblical perspective of sex and gender. And as we learn how to provide appropriate care to people in our community who are navigating gender identity concerns, we must remember that good theology and sensitive care have to be reflected clearly in our doctrine and our policies. And part of what that means is that we will not forget that the very nature of sex and gender is being deconstructed in our society in ways that even transgender people are uncomfortable with. In the midst of our hyper-polarized society, we have to offer a reasoned response in the spirit Of mutual respect. With hearts of compassion. Richard Mao. Has written an excellent book. Uncommon Decency. Subtitled Christian Civility in an Uncivil World. And he talks about the importance of Christians displaying. What he calls convicted civility. Conviction and civility. His concern is that there are too many Christians with strong convictions and weak on the display of civility. Likewise, there are too many Christians who are so remarkably civil, no one knows what they actually believe. Number two, a Christian church that really takes a biblical theology of gender seriously is going to be characterized by a relational ethic. We have to learn to value people with whom we disagree. And not just value people we disagree with. We have to learn how to sustain relationships with them. We are seeing a rise in the stories of people who have found that going through a sex change transition did not bring them the peace and wholeness they sought, but only a new set of problems, And one of the many sad things we hear from those who are detransitioning is that their dysphoria resulted from social hostility toward their dysphoria. We must be respectful and compassionate toward people we may disagree with. And we must be compassionate with people who don't feel comfortable in their body. And we must admit, you have to assume when you meet this person, they did not choose it, and it might not ever change. And when you can hold that in your mind, it will raise up in you compassion. Relational ethic. Number three, we need in these churches humility, we should be humble about what we know and what we don't know, and you and I don't know anything about gender dysphoria. I've spent more hours than I can count studying it. You've spent tonight learning about it, and you still don't know enough to have an opinion other than this biblical framework. Even as we offer clarity regarding the biblical witness about issues of sex and gender, we can still be humble regarding the current limitation of our understanding. One way I can model this as a pastor is to recognize that if someone in my church has gender dysphoria, then I will be only part of the input, influence in their life because they will need a multidisciplinary team approach. It will need to include mental health professionals, with expertise in gender identity issues. It will need to include medical professionals, such as endocrinologists. It will need to be a team with different perspectives, but the common goal of the best interest of the person. One pastor who's doing very good on this with his church wrote in a book, Quote, there is a lovely gentleman in my congregation, a godly man in his early 60s, who, I told you this earlier, wakes up every morning wishing he were a woman. He's had these desires most of his life, starting when he was five years old. And I weep with him in his struggle. And the same can be said of many people that are in our communities. Number four, we need to have a better climate in our churches. Too often churches develop men's ministries that focus on themes of biblical manhood that really end up looking more like some narrow gender rigid stereotype. And then we have women's ministries that focus on a very narrow form of cultural femininity. We must resist the temptation to respond to people in our culture who are trying to deconstruct sex and gender with a knee-jerk reaction that swings into some other direction. We must remember there are many ways to be real boys and real girls, and we don't have to all conform to a stereotype. I've been struck this week. You know, there's a positive, there's a gender, there's a neutral word for a female that is boyish. Do you know what the word is? Tomboy. There is no neutral word for a boy that is feminine. No neutral word in the English language for the feminine boy. You've got sissy. That's pejorative. So girls are allowed to be tomboyish, but boys are not. And that fact alone is crushing people. We've got to remember there are many ways to be boys and to be girls. A very practical, well, okay. Number five, we need in our churches to hold the line on sanctification. To be a Christian is to be in relationship with Jesus Christ that results in the Holy Spirit moving you toward greater Christ-likeness and in an atmosphere of a gracious emphasis on spiritual growth, the church needs to provide a kind of sustained presence with people struggling with their gender. This is hard, hard work. Number six, We need social support in our churches. In an atmosphere of grace, with all those other elements in place, clarity, humility, a climate, emphasis on sanctification, we're now in a position to offer the kind of social support people will need. This will most likely be a small community of fellow believers who are willing to pray for and with the person navigating gender identity issues. I'll close with this. Mark Yarhouse, I've told you about him. A few years ago, his research team, he leads the Institute for the Study of Sexual Identity at Regent University. They conducted the first study of its kind ever on transgender Christians. We collected information on 32 biological males who to varying degrees had transitioned to or presented as women. We asked many questions about issues they faced in their home, their workplace, and their churches. What kind of support would you have liked from the church? One person answered. Someone who would have just cried with me. Rather than denouncing me. It's really scary to see God not rescue you. From cancer. Or schizophrenia. Or gender dysphoria. I wish somebody had learned to allow their compassion to overcome their fear. And their disgust. When it comes to support, churches, we have to rise up. We have to be compassionate. We have to hold the truth. We have to be willing to recognize they haven't chosen it, and it might not ever change. And it is really complicated. And you haven't gotten perfect on your stuff. And we have to hold that out there. Amen.